2: Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I read all the blacklisted books, even the terrible ones. I'm Aoife Vritnach, a locked-down historian seeking smutty distractions. If you want to support the show, it's as easy as telling someone else to listen. Or if you're feeling generous, you can find me on patreon.com slash censoredpod. Contributions go towards buying dirty books, because the libraries won't be open for months yet. This episode, I'm discussing Dennis Wheatley's 1953 book, To the Devil, a Daughter. And I'm sorry to report that I found it truly terrible. So fucking bad. I nearly couldn't read it. Wheatley was wildly popular in his day, writing over 70 books between 1935 and 1975. The Irish censors banned at least five of these. His spy thrillers are credited with inspiring Ian Fleming's James Bond, but his black magic books, of which to the devil a daughter is one, are also very famous. The ludicrous plot of this book is as follows. A jobbing English novelist is living quietly on a small income on the Riviera until the house next door is rented by a young, beautiful woman who does nothing but sit on the veranda all day. Turns out she's possessed by the devil. All the signs are there. She can't touch crucifixes and becomes a nymphomaniac when the sun sets. Add in white slavery, black masses, virgin sacrifices and cloning experiments – all revealed in clunky, stilted dialogue between paper-thin, unlikely characters. The icing on the fucking cake were the frequent political rants against trade unions, communism, the welfare state, and Johnny Foreigner. This book contains the worst little English narrow-mindedness it has been my displeasure to read. I couldn't really choose a drink to go with it, because I wouldn't have been able to stop at a pleasant tipple, it would have driven me into blind drunk territory. Honestly, I nearly lost my mind while reading this book. So I'm turning to a guest to guide me through it. Cop out, I know, but needs must. Kean hosts Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. He covers monsters, folklore, UFOs, conspiracy theories... Everything You Could Imagine in Horror or Fantasy Gets a Look In. And he has read more than one Dennis Wheatley book, God Help The Mark. Hi, Kian. Hi, Aoife. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm very pleased that you uh, agreed to share your insights on this mental, mental book. This book is a hoot and not always in a good way. Um,
1: And I'm always excited to talk about Dennis Wheatley. I, I find it fascinating I mean, I would never go out and say that everybody should read him. Uh, and I don't think most people will appreci- will enjoy it or get anything from it. And it's, it's absolutely a niche thing. I mean, even amongst people who enjoy, you know, old-fashioned, trashy pulp fiction, you know, which always comes with its share of of, of dated attitudes and, and problematic material. And you kind of have to be able to stomach a certain amount of that. Even within that already niche ghetto, uh, this is an even smaller uh, more niche uh, subset of it just because he's so weird and he's so out there. And, and and I'm going to be a little bit apologetic as people who study weekly generally are and say that despite all of that madness, there is something worth persevering with for a certain type of person. In, in his day, he, he was a tremendously prolific novelist. He wrote at least one novel a year from between the middle of the 1930s until the middle of the 1970s. So and he was writing for ordinary average people of all classes. So um, in his day, he was as popular as he he would be like Michael Crichton would have been in the 80s and 90s or maybe uh, James Patterson later on. So, you know, not fancy stuff, not highfalutin stuff and absolutely not literary stuff. He he was hated by critics, but, uh, you know, uh, kind of a barometer for, for what the average person on the street might have been interested in and absolutely not writing for posterity in any way. Um, which is kind of what makes him so hilarious because he's so, all the attitudes of his time and era are just up there on the page. He hasn't thought twice about putting them out there. And, and it's all slapped down with this very reactionary kind of, well, I mean, as you know, are, uh, French people don't know how to look after their finances. And he just, oh, really? Does everyone know that? And <laughs> It's like looking at a time capsule of uh, an actual Victorian era person, you know, making their way through all the decades of the 20th century and eventually becoming kind of more and more grumpy and brexit and reactionary about everything.
2: He was very popular in Ireland in that I have found books that weren't banned on the bestseller list in published in the newspapers, because they would occasionally publish, they called it What Dublin is Reading, and they would have 10 fiction books, 10 non-fiction books. And Dennis Wheatley shows up there when he's not banned. So he's wildly popular, like
1: He's a, he's a mainstay of secondhand bookshops in the UK, um, and it's it's kind of infamous. Like the the group of people who have this kind of nostalgic liking for his books, generally are not people who read them the first time around. They they were republished in the seventies, and people of a certain age who grew, grew up at that time, or, or even in the decades afterwards, will will always tell you, "Oh, there was Dennis Wheatley's everywhere in my granny's house or in the in the secondhand bookshops," and that's kind of how they were, how they got to know them. And, and these were the ones that were, of course, published with the very risque covers, the um, the Tits Editions, as uh, <laughs> some call them, where there will always be a naked girl and a skull and a, a goat head and candles and all this kind of ludicrous black magic stuff, which is, is what he was most associated for. He wrote widely in many, many genres, but kind of early on, he got tagged as the black magic guy. And uh, for the rest of his career, he was kind of, forced to jam a little bit of occult stuff into (laughs) novels where sometimes it's clear he would rather have been writing about something else.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there is that strange tension in the book that we read, To the Devil, A Daughter, where it's a spy thriller, but it's got black magic in it just for a bit of sex, kind of, like, not even sex, actually, because that is the big problem that I had. Why would it be banned? Because... It's very, very mild and there isn't really any sex. There's only like people have nice legs and girls have tits. But that's, I mean, really, is that really all it took? Because it seems very mild.
1: It does. So I'm intrigued to find out between my knowledge of Wheatley and your knowledge of the way the Irish censors think. I hope we can come to some sort of intelligent guess as to what got this one on the list.
2: I mean, I did think when I looked through my notes... And I will have to apologize to listeners in that I didn't read the whole book very closely because it's quite painful at times. So there was a lot of skimming after I read about a quarter of it because it wasn't very easy to read just from the point of view of being terrible. But in one of the earlier chapters, there is a reference where one of the female characters in the book is talking to the girl who turns out to be satanic in the end, but that takes a while she asks her why she's hiding and she then says this weird question before you left england did you go to a private nursing home to have a minor operation and the girl says yes how did you know <laughs> <laughs> basically
1: the, the the hero characters once they realize this i think the the main character who's who's who is female also she's an older uh, she's an author she says something like she, you know, this, this, how strange it is that this, you know, young English girl is living on her own, you know, here in the south of France. And uh, she doesn't seem to have been put away for, quote, the usual reasons.
2: <laughs> yes. And the usual reasons, of course, included that she was pregnant and she's not pregnant. So she asks her, have you had an abortion, more or less? <laughs> And she's like, I don't think so. No,
1: right. So you're not here for for those reasons. It must be Satanism.
2: Well, yeah. If you're not a non, if you're not a single pregnant woman, then you're possessed by the devil. If you're not with your daddy, seems to be the title. So that's my that's my speculation as to why it was banned. Although it is kind of a bit circuitous. Obviously, at the time, everyone would have recognised what that was about. The word abortion is never mentioned. But everyone knew what that was. So I thought that was possibly the only reason. But what do you think? I mean, there is some it's
1: it's titillating to a degree. I I keep meeting people who tell me that, um, you know, back in the 70s or 80s, they would have passed these books around schools, a little bit like what Victoria said in your in your previous episode as a source of titillation. But I mean, unless you're very sheltered, this is pretty mild stuff. But in, in those days, depending on where you were, perhaps that's all you could get a hold of. And it more is implied than is than is on the page. But, uh, like, I mean, the main plot is that uh, a female writer who is living in the south of France, which a place Weekly knew well, and uh, complaining about how tax is making inroads into her income, which is something Weekly knew well and liked to complain about, discovers a neighbour who's a young girl who seems to be behaving mysteriously. And the main, the main thing that tips her off that something is wrong is that while she's well-behaved by day, by night, she goes drinking and gambling and talking to young men and behaving independently and all sorts of other terrible, terrible things. So, again, it must be the devil. She must be possessed. There's literally nothing else it could be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, nobody could enjoy getting dressed up and doing their hair and going out of an evening unless they were possessed by the devil. Now,
1: I don't know if that's enough to have tricked, uh, tipped the censors off. What about the occult? I have to ask: Is is that something they felt strongly about? Would they ban something precisely because of? The, I mean, once you get about halfway into the book, the first half is really boring, but then once the Satanism comes in, he kind of warms to his topic a little bit more. Weekly does, um, and there's some fairly intense dis- descriptions of like how this international satanic conspiracy works, and there's a lot of, you know, we need, we need. Uh, Virgins to you know slit their throat and put them on altars and and have all these gory ceremonies and and there's implications of orgies and um and he gives a great list of like all the different kinds of sexual deviates who could be unwittingly you know ensnared uh, through their loose living by the satanic web. Would that be the sort of thing that might? I mean, it's it's mentioned. It's not. It it doesn't happen there on the page, but we learn of the existence of these terrible things.
2: I'm not sure that the censors were super bothered by the occult. I think what bothered them was the idea that anything would be derisive or degrading of Catholicism. And I think the aspects of the book where he talks about the Black Mass and all of that, I think that would have upset them, yes,
1: right. there is a fairly detailed description of a black mass towards the end of this, with you know bad things being done with crucifixes and um wa- communion wafers <laughs> and stuff like that, so maybe that was it,
2: yeah, I think that's quite likely i mean overall it's it's got a low level of titillation going on, so I don't think it's that I will mention
1: um he, he doesn't he makes an interesting uh, difference between Catholic and Protestant. Uh, attitudes towards his version of occult satanism which I really I found really entertaining which was so in in Wheatley's worldview and he he did kind of come to believe this over time like in the 1930s when he first writes his first occult novel Devil Rides Out in 1935 And he almost in his in his way of explaining it, at least he almost stumbles across the topic. He's just a jobbing writer writing thrillers, and he's happy to write about whatever seems to be popular. And he always maintained, oh, I just thought, you know, there hasn't been a good occult thriller for a while. I will write one of those. And then he had a big hit. And then he was kind of saddled with the with the topic, whether he liked it or not for years afterwards. But in his in in his kind of worldview of, of how religion works, he's not necessarily a Christian. Right, he believes there's ultimate good and ultimate bad, um, and that they've had many names over the over the centuries. And he thinks that you know Christianity is one way to tap into the, the ultimate good force of the universe. So, you know, it, it is helpful if you are a priest, for example, because you're probably trained in you know positive thought. You're probably trained in positive um, ways of of you know praying and getting people's intention into a positive place. Uh, but just you know, a really strong pagan believer might do just as good so he's not particularly catholic or protestant and interestingly in this book even though in every other respect he's he's uber old-fashioned super english you know nigel farage type tub thumper but it's just really weird to me when he says actually in in a situation like this a catholic priest is more appropriate because they're really hung up on on exorcism and they they are trained specially for it and and one of the female characters says well what, what happens in england where most people are protestant and he says yeah, they, they don't recognise uh, exorcism as often, so people who are possessed tend to just end up in an insane asylum. <laughs> so It's like a weird backhanded compliment to the Catholics, like, oh, they're they're credulous and stupid. But, you know, in this one case, it happens to be useful.
2: <laughs> Their belief in magic has some uses, <laughs> and one of them is exorcism. I do think that the The way that the main characters who save the day and who get rid of the devil and all of that, they are not cast as Christian in any way. It's it's very much a kind of a matter of fact, thrillery kind of resolution. And I think that if you're going to write about Satanism and possession from the perspective of the Irish censors, it should be a spiritual, mystical and Christian framework that they would use. I think they would prefer that.
1: He's more mercenary than that. Like I said, any like any sort of strong belief will do the job as long as it's kind of positive. Like in in the, it's more explicit in the Devil Rides Out, where some character is possessed and the the main character, the Duke, the Rich Lowe, who's the guy who's played by Christopher Lee in the film version, which is probably how most people remember Weekly Now. He, he realises, oh, we're in Wiltshire. We're right next to Stonehenge, which has been a, you know, a focus of belief and positive energy for thousands of years. So if we can't get to a church, well, we'll go to we'll go to this pagan place instead. And they put the the character into the middle of the Stonehenge and, and do a ceremony to save them that way. So, yeah, kind of mercenary.
2: Yeah. So I'd like to talk about The Devil Rides Out because that's the thing that pops up the most when you go looking for Wheatley and his Black magic aspects. Um, It was turned into a film, wasn't it, by Hammer Horror, which you've done an episode on. So, can you just tell me a bit more about that book and that film and their afterlife? That
1: was his first real occult book, and like I said, he always maintained that he sort of stumbled into the topic. Just it could have been anything, you know. He just he didn't have any. It didn't have any particular significance to him, but. For whatever reason, I think it's the best balance between his him being a thriller writer and him being the kind of guy who does loads of research and sticks it into his book. And, and the reason I make the comparison to Michael Crichton, I think, you know, as a latter day comparison is that like Crichton, he he was he cared mostly about just telling a fast paced adventure story, you know, but he would do a bunch of research and stick it in there, sometimes in large undigested chunks.
2: <laughs> Oh yes, very much so. Like
1: like Jules Verne would do, and I just think in in that early book, he was just more on his game. He was a younger guy. By the time we get to the to the Devil's the Daughter, it's twenty years later. It's nineteen fifty three ish, and he's recycling a lot of elements because maybe he, I mean it's still good. I still enjoy the occult stuff in 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 this book. But Devil Rides Out is just it's more it's more streamlined. It's more fun the the bits of information are are stuck in there more naturally more and the whole thing flows better and he's playing with these characters who are who are just more fun to be with <laughs> the characters in <laughs> To the Devil a Daughter are fairly the like that first half of the book where man the dialogue is just so so
2: <laughs> it's not dialogue though it's just exposition with double quotation marks around it
1: I I think in the 30s he's kind of writing as a man of the moment you know he is the age that his readers are and his characters are, whereas twenty years later he's trying to write this jokey dialogue. Oh, this is how young people talk, and it's like he he he's, he's just decades out of date. I think, and to focus on the devil's rides out, it, it got a film version, and I, I think for a long time that kind of that kind of sealed his reputation. I think he might almost have been forgotten, you know, amongst the general public were it not for that. And it's it's fun. It's it's, it's one of the better Hammer films, I think. I'm not a big Hammer guy, but I enjoy that one. Christopher Lee always maintained it was one of his two favourite roles alongside The Wicker Man. Uh, it's way sillier than The Wicker Man. You know, The Wicker Man <laughs> is, a, is a transcendental... The Wicker Man's
2: proper scary.
1: Yeah, it's a timeless classic, whereas Devil Rides Out is just a fun, silly romp. And I think it's solidified in the public imagination... If Wheatley granted us with one thing in the whole world, like talk about an, an an author who was everywhere for decades and then fell off a cliff, you know, and and means nothing to most people now, he he granted us this idea that, you know, modern Satanism is still around and it's being practiced primarily by like upper crust toffs in big country houses <laughs> with pentagrams, you know, on the floor of the library and black candles and black masses and, and that sort of thing, which. I think I think that imagery, uh, that stock kind of stereotypical imagery, is still with us. And as someone who traces the, the the history of occult ideas, you know, he was dealing with older ideas that existed before him, and um, going right back into you know hundreds of years of, of conspiracy theories about, you know, like. Uh, Pagan cults stealing children and drinking blood and stuff, and there's a recurrence of that after Dennis Wheatley with the Satanic Panic in the '80s. And if you want to draw the line right up until today with QAnon, they believe a lot of the same stuff. So, you know, he was an, he was a powerful focal point in the 20th century for keeping this idea alive and kind of sharpening it up and using. It's 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 funny that he used it as an ongoing theme for like these ultimately rather silly thrill books. But at the same time, he did come to believe some version of this himself. And by the time he was older, he had written a lot about you know what he thought was happening with the world. And he didn't like communists, so oh, they're obviously in league with Satan. And he didn't like trade unions, so oh, they're obviously in league with Satan. And <laughs> some of that shows up in this book too, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, we have to talk about the completely superfluous political commentary that appears in the middle of dinner at the Riviera when they're having their, you know, pastis or champagne and they're talking about the lovely food. And it is actually quite, it does make you visualize sun-drenched France. I mean, you are thinking, God, it's so glamorous, it's so wonderful. And then he completely ruins the moment by saying, yes, the taxation is eating into my income and they're stealing my money. And you're like, what, what? What's that got to do with anything?
1: <laughs> There's a bit where uh, Molly, who's the writer, hosts a, some sort of dinner party at the French Riviera. And um, she's upset because her guests who have come from England, they can't eat enough. They can't, I think he said something like, they can't do justice to the wonderful spread because of years of austerity and years of rationing they've had in the UK. And, um, you know, she's, she's embarrassed that they're not able to live the good life. Weekly was a massive classist and class plays a huge role in all his books because he was a... He was a sort of a middle class wine merchant and he worked with and he supplied really, really fine wines to like, you know, crowned heads of Europe and and American millionaires and stuff. So he was very snobbish and he was really obsessed with that old fashioned class system and he was aspirational. He wanted to go up in the world, but then look down on the people <laughs> who were under him, which shows up all over the place in this book. And yeah, daily, like at the drop of a hat, he will...
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: And did you notice as well in the in the dinner party, she he she laments the fact that supposedly, you know, we won this war. You know, the, the Second World War is not that long over. But because all our socialist governments are like messing everything up our people can't show up at nice, you know, upper class dinner parties. It's all the supposedly vanquished nations.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Extremely bitter about the fact that the French and the Germans are actually having fun. How dare they, seeing as they're Johnny Foreigner who started the whole mess in the first place. I mean, it's it's absolutely channeling the Brexit casual racist craziness that has become such a virus in British politics.
1: There's a few bits here where he's talking about like non-European people, and it's pretty gross. But it's it's minimal in this book. But there's lots of, you know, as everyone knows, you know, the French can't can't run their finances properly. He has all these weird like expectations for. It. It's like British people being racist about other white European people in ways that I don't recognize. It's really strange. Like he keeps calling the French like garlic eaters. Like, was garlic such a foreign food in Britain in the 50s? Was that such a mark of of exoticism?
2: I mean, to me, it brought to mind uh, that wonderful sitcom Allo Allo, which is, in fact, a, a sketch on British people's perception of French people. You know that's what it is. It's all this, you know, ridiculous, exaggerated accents and all of this foreignness for comic comic effect. But which is actually saying that this is how British people see the world. This isn't how foreigners are. This is what we think they are.
1: I don't think there's any such self-awareness in his work.
2: <laughs> no, I think Wheatley is the. Uh, this is the way foreigners are. the The only thing missing from the book, I didn't notice any casual anti-Semitism.
1: Actually, that's one thing he didn't go in for. He, he in, in, in The Devil Writes Out and various other books, he, he was obsessed with Alexandre Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers. So he has these four characters who are supposed to be his version of like D'Artagnan and The, and the Three Musketeers. And they're all, they're, three of them are English and one of them is American. So they represent all that's good to him about, you know, what Churchill would have called the English speaking nations. But one of them is, is, is Jewish and they, they bring it up a lot. They talk about it a lot. And that's fairly unusual.
2: Extremely. That time period is absolutely chock full with anti-Semitism, just normalised everywhere. And he
1: was—he was friendly. He was kind. He moved in like appeasement circles in the 1930s. He knew Lord Haw He knew William Joyce. Um, I don't think he liked him much, but he knew him socially, and he was—you know—he was going to the same parties as a lot of appeasement folks, which wasn't an unusual viewpoint really at the time. But he was so anti-communist that he would. You know anyone who was anti-communist he would consider, um, you know, being involved with, or he 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 might sympathise with.
2: I mean that is an unusual choice that he didn't include that particular version of prejudice in his work. The other thing
1: I'll say about him that doesn't quite fit the stereotype of you know Victorian reactionary, which he was in many respects, is in some of his books he had a, a touch of that kind of you know eighteen nineties decadence to to him where in some of his earlier works, he's quite happy to have both his male and female characters be really promiscuous and be getting off at lots of different people and no- nobody thinks it's a big deal. And uh, you don't see much of it by the time this book came out. Characters have more traditional gender roles, but he did have a touch of that sort of decadence about him sometimes. And he was more, he was into the good living and not the not the austerity kind of Tory he, his life peaked, if you want, kind of at the at the First World War. You know, as a young man, he was carousing around London, you know, picking up ladies of the night and eating in
2: fine restaurants and drinking the best wine. I can see him as the upper middle class man who was disappointed by the disintegration of the class system post-World War One. I. I think it is that sort of nostalgic feeling yeah. that he has. Well, there's
1: a character in, in To the Devil, the Daughter, There's there's a, actually a fairly effective bit where they break into this satanist house which of course is a, a spooky old country mansion in in the, in the north of essex i think somewhere in the stour valley which is, is a beautiful area and they they're breaking in and they find that there's an ape on a chain guarding a secret door up on top of a tower and it's all very weird and spooky and they get in and they find that there's a guy who has um he's been hiding up there for weeks and he's terrified because he thinks the the evil satanists are going to come and get him and he's he's drawn a pentagram around himself and put up all of these Mystical things as a as a barrier, a magical barrier, and it, it you know it's quite effective as as a guy who is losing his mind because of this mystical evil that's after him. And then they chat with him, and it turns out that he's the father of the girl who who is possessed. And he tells them the, the sad story of how he became a satanist. And it's basically like he used to be a shafur, a chauffeur in a in a big house, and he discovered that. The, the owner of the house was a witch. And because he wasn't, he didn't want to be a good working class guy and, and, you know, not get above his station, he decided to become a Satanist to get special powers and kind of rise up in the world. And you should never do that because, you know.
2: I'd forgotten that element that actually the original Satanist in the plot used it for social gain. That was the whole reason he was a Satanist. Oh God. You see, yeah. it Basically the whole book is... It's the old man shouts at sky, you know, waving his fist and he's just permanently angry. He is the racist drunk uncle at a wedding. And one of the things that shocked me actually when I was reading about Dennis Wheatley, I was just, you know, randomly Googling and I found a blog where this bloke was reading his back catalogue from beginning to end, one after the other, which is insane because there are so many of them. I'm sure it would shorten your life. And he was interviewing uh, the editor of the ebooks and the editor mentioned, the Bloomsbury editor mentioned that they have edited the e-books and that they are not the original script. And I was disgusted at this point because I'd read the damn book. I had the whole podcast planned and I was like, the fuckers haven't published the original text. And I thought, God, is this because they edited out the nasty bits? So is that the case, kian
1: I owned uh, the original text once. And no, actually, I don't think they changed this one much at all because their editing was really, really weird. They didn't do any of the things you would expect. They didn't take out any of the sexism or the racism. They didn't take out any of the classism. They didn't take out any of the pointless political rantings. And I think that's because they know their audience and they know that us weird bunch of niche people who like it sweetly, we come for that stuff. And I, I, I'd have been disappointed if any of that was taken out. What they did instead was they they took out like bits where he repeats himself or okay. where he drops in too much historical research and it isn't relevant to the plot, which I there isn't much of in this book.
2: What what astonishes me is that the Irish censors were offended by something this conservative, because they do represent that type of mindset where, you know, we don't want change. We don't want too much innovation. We don't want too much modern contemporary equality stuff because, you know, women stay in their place and, men rule the world, and yet they were banning his books. I mean, he seems like their bosom buddy, really.
1: Yeah, he he always had this image of being salacious and being titillating and stuff because he wrote about black magic. And I mean, the, the lurid covers from the 70s on really only added to this. But I think there's a long tradition in horror of having your cake and eating it too, where you want to give people these vicarious thrills, but then also... On the other hand, you always horror is kind of inherently conservative in many in many ways. Where at the end of the story, order is restored, good vanquishes evil. The right thing to do is to be on the right side of God or society or whatever. And even with stuff like The Exorcist, which, as we know, ha, you know had a very lurid history here in Ireland, where you, you couldn't see it until the nineties, basically, and it had all of this kind of mythology built up around it that there was something evil or scary or devilish about it. It's a, it's a very conservative work in that if the devil is real then God must be real and the power of God and the church and Catholicism is is real. So there is it's a weird dichotomy that I think has often been with horror, and Dennis Wheatley sums that up very nicely.
2: I have been looking to see if the Exorcist is the book is banned, and I haven't found it so far. So I think it maybe wasn't. I have to double check. Yeah, but...
1: I was looking into this for a pub quiz recently and it it sound it's very complicated. The the film wasn't officially banned, I think, but it just because of some complication with the British production company that would have been showing it or, mm. or, or making it available, it just wasn't available.
2: Oh. So it wasn't actually like refused admission to the system.
1: Well we never talked about drinks.
2: Oh yes, we forgot. Oh, sure. I think you'd want to be pissed to read the book, frankly, in my opinion. But he actually, he's obsessed with drink. I'll mention he it. He's totally like. obsessed with because drink. Because it was
1: his job. His job was he was a wine merchant and he sold to the great and good of the world. And it's it's what made him a snob and it's but it's also what allowed him to to rise up in the class system. His, there's this story within his family of um, I think his grandfather and his brother had the business and they split the business between groceries and drink. And the brother who got the grocery remained working class. And the guy who got the the drinks industry managed to hobnob with with the upper class, and that, and that side of the family became aspirational. So Dennis Wheatley always has his characters stop and and uh, take out a fine bottle of Imperial Tokay wine and smoke Hoyo de Monterrey cigars, and usually usually comment on the the drapes or something as well. He he's so classist about about furnishings like they can be they're literally being chased by Satanists and they'll walk into a room and he'll say oh how hideous the mock chintz drapes are or <laughs> <laughs> there's even a bit in this in, in To the Devil the Daughter where they sneak into the Satanist house at night and they spot that there's a container of brandy so they have to stop and have a brandy and you know comment on how, how you know these chaps have damned good taste even if they are you know rum coves <laughs> <laughs>
2: In some ways, it reminds me of fan fiction, which is always very concerned with what everything looks like and where all the vases are. And, you know, it's like we're going to draw the picture of the actual room in detail rather than giving you an emotional flavor of the room. I will tell you the furnishings bit by bit including the thread count of the carpet or something.
1: Well, one of one of the reasons that's important is he was using real brand names for things for drinks and cigars and cars. He would use names of real restaurants in and hotels in London that he would go to and this all influenced of course uh, Ian Fleming about 10 years later, 10 20 years later. So he knew Ian Fleming, they worked together. In British intelligence, or at least they worked in British intelligence at the same time. I don't know that they necessarily worked together. And he was on Wheatley's extensive list of uh, boozy dinner companions, you know, like a boozy lunch that all of these upper class, you know, lads' club kind of uh, British officers would have done. So they would go working in in MI five or whatever it was called at the time, and then at lunchtime they would go drink champagne and have a big lunch. And it was networking, you know. And he worked his way up through the intelligence service. Through connections that he had. He was a very gregarious guy. He was a very friendly guy. He was a very jolly guy. And he loved good food, good wine, telling stories and making connections with all the right people. So he he definitely knew Ian Fleming and lunched with him a few times. And he knew he, he worked. He definitely worked with his brother, Peter Fleming, who was some kind of a spy in the Far East during the war as well. So, I mean, that's one of the ways in which Weekly influenced Fleming
2: so there is kind of, yeah, there is a crossover with Ian Fleming and the sort of that general mm. era and the personalities. So if you like James Bond, I suppose you might like this, but it's not as good. I mean Bond books are much tighter than this.
1: They are. I would say they're a bit nastier as well, though, with the there's a bit more sadism in them, especially with the way he he interacts with women. Like the sexism in Wheatley is I won't say it's charming, but it's kind of old fashioned and a bit silly most of the time. You might feel differently, or there, any reader might feel differently, but compared to Fleming where it's quite nasty, isn't it? It's it
2: quite... is, and the Bond books were banned as well in the 60s. Diamonds are Forever and things like that were banned. So let's start on the censorship bingo. First one, breasts. Well, yeah, I mean, there was like one or two references, wasn't there?
1: There's a bit where he talks about the, the old lady witch being naked, and he he makes sure that you know that she's got big flabby old lady breasts. <laughs>
2: Yes, nice detail. <laughs> Interestingly, bestiality—I would say no, even though I would have expected something like that.
1: No, nothing, nothing that intense.
2: Yeah, I mean, for Satanism, it's pretty light on the heavy Satanism, isn't it? Sex work—I don't think so.
1: There is some impl- Im- implications of it um, when he's talking about like the list of sort of deviant people oh, who might get suckered yes. into. Yes, he talked to, he, he he wouldn't say that. He would call it like people of loose
2: morals. Yes. I mean, yeah, there's an allusion to sex work. So I suppose we could tick that. Racism. Well, obviously, the whole thing is saturated in all forms of stereotypical prejudice and nastiness. Next one, drugs. Were there drugs used? Was...
1: There's a couple of instances where somebody is, is knocked out by use of a drug. Yeah. Okay,
2: right. So we can tick that one. Uh Politics. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Swearing. I don't think there's any bad language, is there?
1: No, he would he he even does stuff like um then then so and so said such a thing that I couldn't possibly print it here.
2: Yeah, it's it's very restrained on that. Um even in times of great stress they don't say anything. But then they are stiff upper lip Britishers who don't swear. Uh the next one is infidelity. I don't think so. Marriage isn't a big deal in this, is it?
1: No. No. There it's implied that um the son John is a bit of a playboy. But also, there's kind of the the idea that well, he'll he'll get married and, and kind of settle down.
2: And then we have crime, I suppose. Yeah, we'd have to put crime in, really. Yeah, we, le- we
1: learned we learn from CB that like Satanism and crime syndicates are intimately connected.
2: Yes, and there is uh, white slavery and oh yes, smuggling.
1: Yes. That poor girl might wake up in uh, Port Said or <laughs> Buenos Aires tomorrow morning.
2: Dare I say it, if I hark back to the lustful Turk, it's a bit 19th century or even 18th century in its understandings of crime and trafficking. Um, So we'll take that one. Genitalia. Oh, definitely not. It wouldn't be that explicit. No,
1: no. In fact, he comes right, he walks right up to that precipice and looks over the edge and pulls back.
2: Yeah, no, that's too much. Abortion. Yes, actually. Yes. yeah, Yeah? Yeah. That strange reference to a private hospital and a procedure. Uh, Orgies. Yes, there is orgies and it's the the purpose of sex and satanic rituals is to channel bad energy or something like that through orgies. That's right. Sexual assault. No.
1: There's some stuff that happens that isn't great to a modern eye, but I don't think...
2: I don't think so. I think we, we could leave that. Extramarital pregnancy. No, I don't think so. Masturbation. Definitely not. Sex toys. I mean, there should have been in some satanic ritual, really, but I don't think there was, was there? So disappointing. He just didn't go all the way. And there's Satanism. Uh, feminism. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say he'd die rather than even say the word. You know, women voting was probably a bridge too far for him. Divorce. No, also not relevant. Contraception. I don't think so. No. Menstruation. Oh, no. Blasphemy. Yeah, I think the extensive descriptions of the black magic and all of that, they're phrased in a way that isn't intended to offend. They're more phrased as factual.
1: Uh, Yeah. Would a censor make that distinction? Like, they're just going to see all this talk about Satan and go, no thanks.
2: Yeah, I think we could tick that one. Oral sex. Oh,
1: definitely not.
2: No. I mean, there's no sex acts really described anywhere. Graphic violence.
1: Yeah, two animals. There's a lot of animal mutilation Uh, in this.
2: There is. That's quite disgusting. Yeah, that was unpleasant. So we'll take that one. Then queer content. I think there is a suggestion of the type of people who would be seduced by Satanism that it would include gay people as well.
1: Yes, that's on the list for sure.
2: Yeah. It's got 10 out of 25.
1: That's more than I was expecting.
2: I was thinking six. I mean, if you want to read Black Magic style titillating horror Satanist books, don't read to the devil a daughter. What would you suggest out of Wheatley's canon is the best to read for the old black magic?
1: I'd say go go and watch the Devil Rides Out first, and if you enjoy that sort of decadent nineteen thirties upper class satanist stuff, then go and read the book because it has the same story but with way more detail and information. And I, I genuinely I enjoy that stuff because. When he's on form, he does great research and he is he's playing with stuff that was very kind of trendy and relevant at that time. And he was in touch. He knew Alistair Crowley. He knew Matthew Summers. He knew all the right actual practicing occult people at the time. And he got really interesting information from some of them and um, others just tried to borrow money off him. He, <laughs> he always pointed out, how, you know, I like these occult uh, fellows, but they, they never seem to have any money. <laughs> They're always trying to borrow money off me. <laughs> So it, it's a good book, and um, it's the most accessible out of what he's done, and it's when he was top of his game. He's done other good stuff as well, but I think you need a bit more of a taste for it. So Devil Rides Out should do you fine.
2: Yes, I think, I think that's a good recommendation. I mean, it is niche, but if you want to try it out, that's the best one to try it. Thank you so much, and That was a wonderful exploration of the disappointingly low levels of Satanism that turned out to be surprisingly high in censorship bingo. It's a strange book. <laughs> So that was Dennis Wheatley, rampant racist and extremely successful novelist. I disagree with censoring bad books as much as the good ones, but nobody missed out on reading this particular piece of trash. I've been thinking about what Kean said, about how Wheatley reinvigorated horror tropes in popular culture. Makes me wonder if his endless foreigner bashing sustained the little Englander mentality his books would certainly be appreciated by today's frothing maniacs who want to take back control of the borders and all that bullshit. Next episode will be about The Bachelors by Muriel Spark. Spark was also a book a year writer, but her funny, sharply observed social satires couldn't be more different to Wheatley. Till next time, keep your hands clean and your minds dirty.